Well, our sermon text this evening comes from the book of Colossians. So if you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Colossians, we're going to be taking a look at the first chapter of Colossians. Colossians 1, 15 to 23 is what we're going to look at together. And while you're turning there, uh, I just wanted to give a brief introduction. Um, my name is Derek Bukema. This is the third time that I've been allowed to be here filling this pulpit in the, the evenings at, at Faith. And I'm just really excited to be able to be back. And um, I'm sure that I've said this before, but my grandfather is uh, a man, Dr. Dirk Berksma, who was the pastor of this congregation uh, when it was Warren Park Christian Reformed Church. And uh, so every time I'm, I'm preaching here, he's especially excited that I'm doing that. And he reminds me that he was the minister here. And uh, one request that I have of you, my grandfather was a professor of preaching at Westminster Theological Seminary, where I just graduated. And I was able to have him as a professor of preaching my last semester, which was really, really cool. And um, also profoundly terrifying. But one of the things that he was big on was having, having a good structure, having three points, and making sure that all the points were about the same length. And I, I wasn't able to do that for this sermon. My first point is way longer than my second or third point, so just please don't tell him that that's the case. <laughs> and hopefully it'll still be a successful sermon, and uh, you know we'll all get along, but we don't need him to, to know about that right now. But I'm really, really excited to look at this particular passage with you this evening. Colossians 1, 15 to 23 is, in my opinion, one of the most beautiful sections of Scripture. And it's also, again, pretty daunting. I was talking to a minister who was in Wheaton, and he said that being asked to preach on Colossians 1, especially 15 to 23, is like being asked to perform a great piece of music, like a great hymn of the faith, like something like a mighty fortress is our God, and then being given a kazoo to perform it with. He said no matter how well you perform the song, you feel like you never could do justice to it with that implement. And in the same way, this is such a beautiful and a striking and a stirring part of scripture, that it's hard to be able to tell how a sermon could ever do justice to this beautiful piece of scripture. And certainly no, no sermon is ever as good as the text that was read before it, but it seems like that might especially be the case. But because of how beautiful it is, I'm excited to dig into it with you and take a look at it with you and, uh, and learn to glorify Christ with you all more this evening. And so let's say a, a, let's say a prayer together before we begin um, just please join me in a word of prayer before we begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that we now have the opportunity to look into it and to study it together. We pray that you would move our hearts, that you give us receptive hearts to hear what it is that you have to say to us. I pray that if anything this evening uh, that I say does not come from you, I pray that it would quickly fall to the ground, it would pass away, it would be forgotten. Pray also that if anything is from you, that it would remain, that it would strengthen us in our faith and strengthen us in our love for your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. So Colossians 1, beginning at verse 15, and let's remember that what we're about to hear is the very and is the true word of God. He that is Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, 
visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. This is the word of the Lord. Now, people of God, what we just heard, what we just heard, Colossians 1, 15 through 23, is widely considered to be one of the most important texts in the whole of Scripture about Jesus Christ. Theologians and biblical scholars pretty much all agree that if you're to come to understand who Jesus is, you must spend some time dealing with Colossians 1, 15 to 23. It's a passage that's been wrestled with and wrestled through throughout the history of the church. And it's one that's caused some commotion and difficulty. But it's a beautiful, beautiful passage. Verses 15 through 20, it may come out a little bit in the English. It's a little bit clearer in the Greek, actually, is a poem. It's a poem. And we might be able to pick up on that because of all the phrases that seem to be sort of opposites that are set alongside of each other. He's the creator of all things, visible and invisible. Sometimes there's almost a heaping on of words in him and for him and by him. All things were created. But it makes sense, I think, that this would be poetry that we're taking a look at this evening. Because within this section of scripture, there are some things that would seem to be opposites that are held together. Jesus Christ in this passage is clearly said to be God. And at the same time, he's said to be a man. Because we're told that we're saved by his physical body. And so poetry sometimes has a way of expressing things deeper and more profoundly than prose alone can do. And so dealing with these immense and complex beauties that Jesus Christ is both God and both man holds together well in poetry. But you know, those things are difficult, I think, sometimes to get our heads around to figure out how Jesus Christ could be God and man. And so this passage has been the center of a lot of controversy as well. And I'm just going to set up one of the controversies that this passage has created. Early early on in the church, there was a, a, a church leader named Arius. And Arius was teaching a doctrine that he said came out of Colossians 1, verse 15. What Arius said is that Jesus wasn't God, that he was a created being. He said, Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, according to Colossians 1. 
And so what Arius claimed was that Jesus was created and not equal to God, not the same as him. And this teaching started spreading throughout the church, and the church decided that they needed to deal with it. And so the emperor, Emperor Constantine, who had himself recently become a Christian, called a meeting of all the church leaders, all the bishops that could come, and they met in Nicaea. And there they discussed Jesus Christ, and they took a look at a lot of different passages, but one chief one they looked at was Colossians 1, 15-20. And they spent time deliberating, saying, who is this Jesus? And the followers of Arius said, he's a, he's a creature. And much of the church said, no, he's God. And ultimately, that's what the church decided. But people still today struggle with this passage. I don't know if you've ever had an opportunity to speak with Jehovah's Witnesses, but oftentimes they'll try to point to this passage, Colossians 1, 15, and they'll say, see, Jesus is created. So who is he? Who is this Jesus? Well, what I hope that we'll see this evening is we'll see that Jesus is our creator, we'll see that he's our king, we'll see that he is God. Those are the three things that we're going to take a look at, and those three things actually all will fall under the first point, because as we take a look at the whole of this passage, we'll take a look at who it is that Jesus Christ is, we'll take a look at what it is that he's done, and we'll take a look at how we should respond. That's what we're going to be taking a look at. So let's Turn now to our first point. Who is this Jesus? And there are three things that we should see. The first thing that we should see is that he is the creator. There's poetic language here that establishes the totality of creation that happened under Jesus Christ. And I'm going to read it for us. It says, For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible or invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And this is poetic language that's being employed to tell us that Jesus Christ is the creator. Everything that we see and everything that exists that we don't see came into being through Jesus Christ, by the word of God, Jesus Christ. It's as if to say, there is no way that anything more could have possibly been created except that which was created by Jesus Christ. He created the totality of all things. He is the creator. And so anywhere you look, anything that you could think of, anything that you possess, it all came into being because of the created, creative aspect of Jesus Christ. But not only is he the creator, but he is the sustainer because we're told that in him all things hold together. And so Jesus Christ, the one who called in this universe, didn't sit back once it was created and watch his creation. But he's in fact intimately involved with every part of it because in him it holds together. He's the one. He's the one that keeps the cosmos from becoming a chaos. He's the one that ensures that there's not one rogue molecule in all of creation. Because he is so totally and completely the creator. He created it. It's here because of him. 
And as scientists search for a key to everything and philosophers scan data to try to find a reason for life, here we're told what that reason is. It's Jesus Christ, the one who created all things and the one who holds all things together and sustains them now. He's the creator. But he's also the king. He didn't just create all things that we see, but he rules all things that we see. And that's talked about also. And what's interesting here is the language of firstborn. It says in Colossians 1.15, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And as we hear that, as we hear that, we might think, well, doesn't that mean he would be the first one born or the first one who was created? And sometimes that's, that's what we can assume from reading this. Well, maybe he was the first one created. And it does get at a temporal priority that Jesus Christ has. But it's not speaking of birth order in the same way we would speak of birth order. I'm the eldest son, so I'm the first one that was born. But there was a time when I didn't exist. But firstborn for the Jews and for those who in this culture would have received this message would have understood something a little bit different by firstborn. Because firstborn meant that he was the one who was destined to rule, who was destined to reign. In a democratic society, it's a little bit more difficult to, I think, wrap our minds around that. But if we think about Britain, if we think about England, Great Britain, Recently, there was a wedding that took place there that my sister was obsessed with. It was Prince William who married Kate Middleton. And a lot of my friends really got really worked up about the fact that this wedding was going to be taking place. And a lot of me was like, what's the big deal? But I think that what a lot of people were very compelled by was the fact that this was the firstborn that was getting married. This is the one who's destined to rule and reign in England. You could start to get a little bit of the sense that comes through. But for us, I think, to, to really totally understand what's coming through here in Colossians 1.15, it's important for us to take a look at Psalm 89. Psalm 89 really gets at this notion of firstborn as the one who is destined to rule. And you can feel free to turn there with me, or you can feel free to just listen as I read this portion of Scripture. Because I'm going to read Psalm 89, beginning at verse 24. And in this passage of scripture, the psalmist is talking about David. And I'm going to read 24, verses 24 through 29. It says this. My faithful love will be with him, and, uh, and through my name his horn will be exalted. I will set his hand over the sea, his right hand over the rivers. He will call out to me, you are my father, my God, the rock, my savior. And this is important right here. Verse 27, it says this. I will also appoint him my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. I will maintain my love to him forever, and my covenant with him will never fail. I will establish his line forever, his throne as long as the heavens endure. And so we can see here that the language of firstborn is used, but it's not applied to the birth order because David, we know, was not the first one born to his parents. 
No, instead, firstborn here is speaking of rank, about the fact that he will establish David as the one who is destined to rule, the one who will take the throne. And Psalm 89 digs a little bit deeper about what that means too. It says, I will appoint him my firstborn. And then you wonder what that means, and it says, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. And so when Colossians 1 says that Christ is the firstborn of all creation, it's not saying that he's a created being, that he's the first one to have been brought into existence. It's saying that Jesus Christ is the one who has always been destined to reign on his Father's throne, to rule completely and totally. And so Colossians 1 is telling us that not only is Christ the creator of all things, but he's the one that reigns over all things, that rules all things. And so just as you could not get at anything that Christ didn't create, there is no speck of this world, seen or unseen, where Christ does not reign. Christ rules over all. Anywhere we walk, anywhere we set our feet, there Christ reigns because he is the high king, the firstborn, the one who reigns and rules. I don't know about you, but sometimes, sometimes it can be tough. It can be difficult to keep this in my mind all the time. There are times when I forget the fact that Christ reigns over all things. I don't know if that's a problem for you or for me. This past summer, I went to visit a woman in the congregation where I was interning. I was interning in Los Angeles, California. There's a woman in the congregation who was struggling with, with depression, with deep depression, and she was sent to a convalescent home to try to help her deal with that. It was a state-run convalescent home near where my church was, and so I went and I paid her a visit. And in this place, beds were just crammed together, and it's a place that took a lot of people with mental difficulties or disorders of one sort or another. And so people were sometimes walking the hallways, just muttering to themselves. There wasn't enough staff to take care of people, so many people were filthy. And when I went in to speak with a woman from my congregation, she was so in the throes and the grips of depression that she spent most of the time just weeping, just out and out weeping as I sat there and held her hands. And everywhere around me, things seemed out of place and everything seemed wrong. And as I looked into the eyes of this woman from my congregation, I saw nothing but sadness. And I looked for hope, and it was hard to see it. For a while, I was tempted to wonder. And for a while, I did wonder, where is Jesus? Where is he? Can his reign possibly extend into this terrible, seemingly God-forsaken place? And at that moment, I remembered Colossians 1, and I was so thankful that I was in the midst of studying the book of Colossians. And God, by his grace, allowed me to remind myself, even here, even here, Jesus Christ reigns. Even in the depths of depression, even in the most difficult situations, 
even where Christ is not acknowledged, even where he is mocked or not, or where people aren't allowed to speak of him, even there, Jesus Christ reigns. And as even as Joanna was in the grips of depression, Christ was holding her and ruling her life. This is a mighty and a profound comfort that no matter where we are, we're in the grip of our King, Jesus Christ. We can't escape it because just as his creation was total, so is his reign total. But you know, it can be difficult to be spending time again and again and again with individuals who don't acknowledge Christ. And that's why I'm so thankful for the section of Colossians 1 where it also says he's the firstborn and the head in his church. And it reminds me of how important it is for us to continue meeting together with each other. Because Christ reigns everywhere, but especially in his church. And you say, here is the group of people that acknowledges Christ's reign. Here are the people who admit that he is Lord of all things. And so as we gather together with each other, Sunday mornings and Sunday evenings, it's a privilege and it's a responsibility to remind each other, Jesus reigns. And even though when we step out of this building during our week, many people are going to deny that, we know it's true. And so let's not let each other forget about that. The church is so important. Christ rules most clearly here. The last thing, the last thing that Colossians talks about is that Jesus Christ is not only the creator, not only the king, but he's also God. And the same language that's applied to the totality of Christ's creation is applied to the fact that he is totally God. There are two things that, 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 that stick out to me in, in talking about Jesus Christ as God. The first is that it says that he is the image of the invisible God right away at the beginning. And that's telling us he's the exact likeness of who God is. It's telling us that if you want to see who God is, take a look at Jesus, because that's where you'll get the clear picture of who he is. But also in verse 19, it says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. That's what verse 19 says. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. The whole of the fullness of God dwelt in Jesus Christ. And this is again saying he couldn't be more God. All the fullness of God was Jesus Christ. And so when you looked at Jesus, you saw not only the perfect image of who God is, but you also saw the whole of the fullness of God because Jesus Christ is God. And really, because he is God, that's the only reason that he can be the creator of all things. And because he's God, that's the only reason that he can reign with the totality that he has in his reign. It is because he is God. And that's what Colossians is telling us. Jesus Christ, the creator and the king, is God. 
Only because of that truth can the other two aspects of this passage stand. Because he is God. And so that's who Jesus Christ is. That's who he is. And then Colossians moves on to telling us what he has done. What has Jesus done? Well, verse 21 talks a little bit about it. It says, Once you were alienated from God, and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. It says, once you were alienated from God. And this word, again in the Greek, gets at an utter separation, a total and a a seemingly irrevocable separation. It's a word that gets at at the depths of sort of loneliness and, uh, and separation. And my question for you is this. Have you ever had a time in your life where you found... where you felt as though you were in the depths of of alienation, where you were profoundly lonely, and you felt as though you were irrevocably alone? Has there ever been a time like that in your own life where you felt just a profoundly tangible loneliness? The question for you is this, is, is how is it that your loneliness can be alleviated? I can tell you right now, it's not from someone like sending you a text or shooting you a message on Facebook or uploading something to Instagram or something like that. None of those things are going to be able to end your loneliness. The truth is that if I'm profoundly lonely, if we're profoundly lonely, what we need is somebody to come and physically be with us, to sit with us. And this alienation that we experienced was a a total separation from God. And similarly, there was nothing that could be done except a physical body that would end this alienation, that would end this loneliness. And that's what Christ did. Once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he's reconciled to you by Christ's physical body. By his physical body. Christ ended our loneliness by becoming present with us. It's the only thing that could have done it. By him becoming physically present with us. It's beautiful. It ended our alienation. It ended our loneliness. That's one of the things that he's done. The second thing that he's done is that he's brought us redemption. Verse 19 says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Christ brought reconciliation, he brought redemption, and he brought it by shedding his own precious blood on the cross. And what's astounding is that this talks about how Christ was pleased, that God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in Christ, and then pleased to bring us reconciliation, 
pleased to bring us redemption by the shedding of Christ's blood on the cross. And the road that Christ walked that attained salvation for each and every one of us was a difficult road. It was a challenging one. It was immensely, immensely filled with sorrows, but it's one that he took pleasure in walking for our, on our behalf. It pleased God to allow his fullness to dwell in Jesus Christ. It pleased God to bring redemption through the shedding of Christ's blood. And so as you think of Christ going to the cross, realize that it pleased him to do that, to offer himself as a sacrifice for you and for me. And do you know why it pleased him to do that? It's because he loves you. He loves you so much. He loves you. that's why it pleased him to go to the cross to bring us redemption and reconciliation with God. Christ ended our alienation. He redeemed us. And so that leads us to a final question, and that's how should we respond to this? How must we respond to this? Well, faith is the only fitting response. Verse 22 says, But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel, This is the gospel that you heard that's been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Continue in your faith. Faith is the only fitting response. If we see and if we really understand who this Jesus that we worship is, if we see him for who he is, if we understand what it is that he has done, there really is only one fitting response, and it's faith. In Jesus Christ. It's the kind of faith that's unshakable and is unmoving. It's that kind of faith that's talked about throughout the Old Testament. I think about it, uh, I think about the example in Jeremiah 17 that strikes me most clearly. And let me read this to you just quickly. But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. He will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots in the stream. It does not fear when the heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought. It never fails to bear fruit. We're encouraged in Colossians to be unshakable and unmoving. And that happens in one way. It happens when we abide in Christ. If we're willing to put our trust in Jesus Christ, abide in him, then we will be like that tree that sends its roots deep into the ground right next to a stream. We'll be those people who are firmly rooted in Jesus Christ so when times of trouble or times of drought come, we won't be shaken. That's what happens to people who abide in Jesus Christ, who continue in faith. You become unshakable in your commitment to Christ because of his grace. So because of who Jesus Christ is, and because of what he's done, 
must respond in faith. We must look to him and trust in him. Because he's the creator. He's our king. And he is God. In the beginning of the sermon, I mentioned how this passage created a great deal of controversy. This teacher, this false teacher, Arius, was trying to tell people from Colossians 1 that Jesus Christ was created. But as the church got together and met and spoke and talked about this passage, it was nearly unanimous. Every vote at this council except three came back and they said, no, Colossians 1 15 through 20, the whole of Scripture affirms that Jesus Christ is God. And they created a creed. And we still say it today the Nicene Creed. And so, one of the things that I would like for us to do is for us to turn to the Nicene Creed in our Blue Psalter hymnal. It should be on page four. And I'd like for us to affirm, along with those who throughout history have affirmed the same thing, taking a look at Colossians 1 and taking a look at the the whole testimony of Scripture, I'd like for us to stand and read this together and then together affirm that Jesus Christ is God. And so let's stand and say this together. So Christian, what is it that you believe? I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sitteth on the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceedeth from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spake by the prophets. And I believe one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. And I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come.